great to be with you this morning uh, in a way. It's, uh, I've been doing this for two and a half years with another congregation in the city that's been looking for a pastor. And that, what I mean by that is preaching to or speaking to an empty auditorium. Uh, and that's always an unusual experience. But uh, by faith, I know that some of you are out there this morning and we want to greet you. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I'm just privileged to be here. Chris, uh, my son, is taking a little staycation uh, to be home, and I guess do some yard work and house chores around, and I uh, hope he's having a good time doing that this week and getting some rest. Uh, we're going to be continuing in the study of First Peter, and you know, just I don't really want to give a disclaimer in regards to teaching the Word of God, but I kind of do want to give a disclaimer. And it's something that I have become increasingly aware of, aware of is that the reality is the call for the person who's going to follow Jesus and for the church is to be count, countercultural. And to be countercultural simply means that we don't look anything like the political systems or the world systems of the world today. And therefore, the Christian, in some degree, is always at odds in whatever culture where God places him. Now, the expectation was, and it's a, it's a little strange for us, and this is where it gets difficult for us in 21st century North America to read some of the things that we read that were written, spoken by Jesus and by his disciples in the first century, although they're very applicable to many of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world because even though it's not our experience, it is certainly their experience. And I, you know, I think of things like preaching through the book of Revelations where there's so much symbology and there's so much uh, of that that is current interpretation about f future events uh, that it's a difficult book for, I think, an honest pastor to preach through. I also think about the book of James. Now, the book of James is wildly popular around the world with the exception of Europe and North America because the presumption of the book of James is that money does you no good. And as we well know in our culture, financial success, I mean, I, I like to look through things and you know, about this or that on YouTube, and I'm always being interrupted in whatever video that I'm watching because it's telling me how I can get, you know, it's an advertisement telling me how I can get rich quickly. And, and essentially, the book of James is saying that you'll never find happiness and you'll never find satisfaction by being financially secure. And there's a lot of, you know, there's part of that is what we would say is the American dream is that everybody ought to be financially secure. And the book of James says that is an illusion and a delusion, and it's not worth being pursued in your life. And so that's kind of, at, that's at odds uh, the, with the way that we think culturally. And then the book of First Peter is kind of a reflection of a lot of things that Jesus himself had to say when he said to people, hey, if you follow me, you will be persecuted. If you follow me, don't expect to be the most popular person at the Christmas party. And as a matter of fact, expect not even to be invited to the Christmas party. Uh, you know, as a Christian, sometimes persecution is subtle. Uh, and sometimes, you know, it's just kind of being socially isolated from everything that everybody else is doing. Sometimes it's, it's just a matter of feeling a little strange or awkward because we don't always join in in what everybody is doing at the office or at school or in whatever uh, community which we live. And uh, sometimes in places like for our brothers and sisters in Christ in China and Africa and around the world, persecution is absolutely more overt and, and can cause you to lose your job. 
I can remember years ago, I was uh, teaching on a university campus in China, and, and it was a time and place where many of the students uh, were coming to faith in Christ in kind of a radicalized communist state. The church was growing, which is uh, a lot of surprising to a lot of people, but it was. And one of the leaders was explaining to me about the thousands of young men and women who were coming to Christ is that immediately they lost their state-sanctioned job by making that decision. Uh, so kind of think about that in our context. Uh, you know, in America, uh, somebody pours their life into four years of getting, you know, a college education or a higher education degree. Uh, and immediately because you make a decision that God is who he says he is and that he does love humanity and that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, you immediately forfeit. Immediately. Now think about that in your context. You know, Jesus, Jesus said something to the disciples that a lot of us kind of overlooked today. He said, you know, before you become one of my followers, you better count the cost. Now, that's full disclosure. Now, you, you and I are being used to being sold a bill of goods and then finding out later that what we bought wasn't what we thought it would be. Jesus kind of takes the opposite direction, doesn't he? I mean, Jesus says, look, if, if you're going to follow me, you're always going to be countercultural. Yeah, I don't have a big congregation here, just some of the praise team. But, you know, I, I'd look at your eyes if you were here and say, do you hear what I'm saying? You're not going to be well accepted by the Democrats and the Republicans and the systems and the thought uh, provokers of America or any other place in the world because the kingdom where you are swearing allegiance to, and we're going to talk about that kingdom briefly, is distinctly different than all of the other kingdoms of the world. So I guess the way that we would put it is, if you're going to follow Christ, you're always going to be weird. You're always going to be a third, third culture kid. No matter, no matter it, it may be in your family, often it is in our families when we come to faith in Christ. It certainly will be in your community. Uh, it will be true in your school. It'll be true in your office workplace. You're going to have a different thought pattern, and you're going to have a different way that you react to life. And your value and what you gain satisfaction and joy from are going to be from different sources than the world you live in. There's no way, there's no way you can follow Jesus. I don't know if I made it clear. There's no way. There's absolutely no way that you can follow Jesus and be comfortable in the world that you live in. There's always this sense of, of the way I think the Apostle Paul would have said it is we're ambassadors. And ambassadors are someone who take up a temporary residence with a particular obligation and task to accomplish, but they're always not part of that culture. So even though those of us, my wife and I, have lived in other cultures, and we're very aware of what it means to be in a culture that doesn't share our values. And we look different, and we act different, and we think different. But it's a little strange for us, those of us who have grown up in America and in American context, to know that even in that context, we are different as followers of Christ. Now, 1 Peter is a book that was written to people who were being persecuted. And because of that, and it's hard for us to relate to this initially and put ourselves into it, although I think there are, are five uh, transcendent principles in this passage in 1 Peter. If you've got your Bible or you want to turn on to your app or your computer to find it, but it, the text we're going to be looking at is 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 
going through verse 14, the closing of this passage. But what, what Peter, what he's doing, what he's writing to a group of people who uh, have been forced to leave home. Now, uh, during this period of time in the first century, uh, Rome had conquered much of the known or what we would call the civilized world. But people were very, still very tribal. There was a lot of linguistic differences. And one of the things that Rome tolerated that a lot of the world's dictatorships uh, won't tolerate today is they tolerated uh, local religions. And so they extended their political power and uh, they extended their economic power, but they allowed people to worship the local gods. So Christians kind of all across the Roman Empire uh, got in trouble wherever they were at, even they, though they were part of a particular culture, because they, what, what happened is they were now swearing allegiance. They were becoming followers of Jesus Christ, which made, always made them the, the odd woman or the odd man out of wherever the place was that they lived. And so persecution would spring up. Uh, and persecution would kind of be cyclical. Uh, it's kind of like uh, I love living in Asheville, North Carolina. I love the spring. I love the summer. After growing up in a climate where, where, where summers were just intolerable, you guys think it's hot sometimes around here. And my, my wife and I just love the summers. And I love the fall. I love the whole fall experience. I love seeing the leaves. I love the, the fresh, cool air that comes in, you know, sometimes even in August as we've experienced this morning. I love the changing of the colors of the leaves. But after December the 25th and Christmas, I hate Asheville. I just hate the winter. I am not into 36 degrees and rain and 40 mile an hour winds. It just doesn't do anything for me. And so, you know, I, you know, I used to think people who'd go down to Florida and come back, you know, that they were crazy. But now I'm beginning, you know, to understand that. So persecution is kind of like wintertime for people like me. It just, it just comes. And it happens around the world. And it, sometimes it's connected to different governmental changes. And it will kind of burn through a culture. And then it will stop for a while. And then it will come back. We haven't experienced that because of religious freedom for 200 years. But that may change. But right now, this conversation that Peter is having with these folks, you and I almost cringe at it. Because it is so serious and it's so sober and it's so difficult for us to kind of imagine this kind of situation. But, but the reality is uh, they, were, they were being persecuted and they had left their homes. They had left the security of their culture. They had had to change languages. Many of them, most of them were either slaves or had been slaves or impoverished. And so it was, it was for them an exceedingly difficult period of time. And it was an exceedingly difficult life. But, but they felt that the value of the kingdom of God and the value of following Christ was transcendent over everything else. And so they were willing to pay the price. And so they were dispersed by this time that Peter writes all over the Roman Empire. So I want to give you these five transcendent principles that I hope to some degree that, that by the Holy Spirit, he'll incorporate them into your heart. And as you go through life, you'll begin to think about these things and maybe remember some of these things. So look at verse 12. And so this is the way Peter addresses them as kind of colleagues. Dear friends, when the fiery ordeal arises among you to test you, don't be surprised by it as if something unusual were happening to you. Now, that has, a, that has a general application, and it has a particular application. 
and let me give you the particular application first. The particular application was for the people living in the first century. It is a particular application to our brothers and sisters in Christ in China and Africa that were being persecuted for their faith uh, because it was about the suffering that sometimes we suffer because we've chosen to follow Jesus. And so what he's saying is, is do not be surprised when you're persecuted by, for your faith. Now, needless to say, I think for many of us as Christians, we're surprised <laughs> in America. You know, we're shocked that so much of our culture is negative towards the faith that we have. Now, some of that's a parody of what they think we believe, that we really don't believe, and maybe some things we've even done ourselves that have kind of come back and brought some blowback, but that would have been true in the Roman Empire as well. There were the cultural elites would be saying negative things because they didn't want Christianity disrupting the power of Rome, and there would have been a lot of negative press out there, and so they were kind of undergoing the same thing, but we kind of can get a foretaste of what they were uh, uh, going through, but don't, uh, essentially what he's being, what the, he's encouraging the people is not to react as, is, as if this was some injustice that no one else has ever experienced. And that's, the, that's kind of the way you feel when you're isolated and you're being persecuted. You feel like this is totally unjust. And, and, and in this category, not only is it unjust or there's injustice, you have no power to do anything about it. You say, well, why didn't they just uh, write their congressman or protest? Because Rome had a way of dealing with people who protested in the streets. They crucified them. These folks were powerless. So in America, sometimes we cherish the fact that at least we have a voice. If we disagree with our, you know, our government, if we disagree with our elected officials, we can vote. Uh, we can I mean, if things push comes to sub, we can't, we can't go to the streets and we can protest. But in this context, in the first century, and in the context of China and Russia, in the context of Africa, they kill you. They don't support you. They don't celebrate you. They just kill you. And for the majority of the history of the world, that's the way it has been. And it is for the majority of the world, that is the way it is. It's not our experience. So these folks are suffering injustice, but they are in, it is an injustice that all they can do is seethe inwardly, if that was the right response, which it's not, <clears throat> or they can find a power that the world doesn't understand. The second application is, is just the general application of suffering. Now see, in America today, and, and unfortunately in the church, there's a lot of teaching that teaches us that if you follow Jesus, you will not suffer. The, 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 the problem with that is that is divorced from the reality of everything that Scripture and Jesus himself taught us. We live in a fallen world. And because we live in a fallen world, everyone suffers. Your neighbor, your non-believing neighbor suffers. You suffer. We all experience suffering in a general way. And sometimes what I've heard you know, in my lifetime is that suffering is a sign of the absence of God. I mean, that's what the non-believer says, well, if, there, if God was good and if he existed, he wouldn't allow the suffering. And even the believer says, if God loved me, then God wouldn't allow my suffering. But what Scripture tells us over and over again is that suffering is a part of the human lot 
as a result of rebellion against God's rulership until we see the return of Christ, where suffering will end. There is a time, there is a time when justice will reign for all men and women. There is a time when all suffering, all tears in humanity will cease. There is a time coming when peace will reign over the earth, but it is only when God the King reclaims ownership of his rightful dominion, which is our hearts in the world that he's created. And so the Christians look forward to that, and there is there has historically been understand, an understanding that when suffering comes, we, we are not to be surprised. It happens. Bad things happen to bad people, and bad things happen to good people. That's just the reality of life. Now, for the Christian, we're part of a different kingdom, we have a different resource. We have a different source of strength, and it is not the strength of a perfect life. It's not the strength of having everything the way we always thought it ought to be. Not in this life. That's not in this life. So he goes on to say, and that don't be surprised by it as if something unusual was going to happen to you in some, or when the fiery ordeal arises among you to test you. Now, what he's not saying is God is testing you. What he's saying is this ordeal is testing you. If you've lived long enough, there will be ordeals in life that will test you. That's normative. Uh, uh, during this first century, there were two experiences that everybody in the Roman Empire would have had. Uh, Rome had conquered in the second century before Christ, first century before Christ, even the first century, and they had built extensive roads around the Roman Empire. In fact, they were engineering geniuses. And a lot, you can go today, and there are places in Europe where the Roman arch and the bridges uh, still stand two, three, 2,100 years later. And what the Roman engineers would do, the road crews would do, that were a lot of more slaves, is they would use whatever local stone that they had, with the exception of the keystone. Now, the keystone, they often would travel with these stones because the keystone had that you could build a bridge with granite, but the keystone, the keystone wouldn't hold the weight. And so the word literally sometimes translated in our scripture, uh, test or to bear up, is the word that was used for a stress test on the keystone of a Roman bridge. And that, Roman, that keystone had to be of a denser uh, rock-like material because all of the pressure uh, came into that point. Now, what, what he, Peter is saying is when you feel like all of life is collapsing on you, that is not an indication of the absence of God or the lack of the love of God. So I've, I've heard this taught in American churches, that if you have faith in Christ, that you're going to have your best life now. And let, let, without trying to be argumentative or theologically, you know, kind of combative, let me just kind of say it in the nicest way I can. That's a lie. That is a lie. If you are a human being and you are alive, pressure comes. Testing comes. Now, the reality is the testing really kind of demonstrates and reveals who we are as a people. The second ideal here is, is they, everything was open air during the first century. You would have walked through the market and you would have seen, you know, how the meat was slaughtered. You would have seen, you know, how the cheese was made. You would have seen all these different things. And uh, they were used to seeing uh, the, what we would have called the blacksmith. And uh, whether they were making, refining gold or silver or bronze or iron or something else, uh, the, the hotter the fire, 
the more the purity of the base metal that they were attempting. It would burn off the dross. And so they were used to seeing this type of intense heat that would burn off the dross. And, and essentially, this is what Peter is saying about the nature of test. The nature of test reveal us who we are in our core, what our true values are. And I've seen this as a pastor now for 43 years. I've seen this in the reality of the church. And under the test, under the weight of difficulties and suffering and adversity in the church, we find some people turn away from God and some people go incredibly deeper in God. So that test reveals us for who we really are. So the first thing that I want to say is don't be surprised when you go through tests, whether those are just the general test of life, of cancer or heart disease or losing someone you love or the loss of a job or economic downturn or not getting the job you wanted. All those different things are just part of living life. Uh, and if you suffer for being a Christian, uh, that's going to happen too because Jesus said essentially it would because we're not long-term a part of this culture. Look if you would at verse 13 and verse 14. Verse 13 says, instead, instead, in place of this surprise of the sufferings, instead, as you share in the sufferings of the Messiah, rejoice so that you may also rejoice with great joy at the revelation of his glory. If you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of the glory of God rests on you. So, what, what Peter is essentially saying here is remember to live your life with the long view in view. In other words, I think the psychological principle we would call it today is live in the context of deferred gratification. Uh, it, this is not your best life now. <laughs> if this is your best life, our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who still live in poverty... Uh, who still die at a very early age where they don't have access to all the things that you and I have today, uh, they, this is not their best life now. And for most of us, the reality is no matter how much the world gives us, uh, it's not going to be our best life now. As a Christian, we have a hope for something that is better in the future. And so Peter is encouraging these folks that in these difficult times, look forward to that which God has promised you. You know, you know, essentially, the gospel is, is, is a twofold promise. Number one is the God who created us is a holy and a perfect God, and I'm not. I'm a sinful, rebellious man in my very nature. And because I was created for God, I was designed by God to enjoy God, to take pleasure in God, to find my satisfaction in God. Essentially, I spend my life running around trying to find that in other human relationships or, or money or pleasure or power or some other type of materialistic issue. And so Jesus Christ, who died on the cross and satisfied God by paying or justifying for my sinfulness, has given me the gift of restoring that which was lost from the garden. God's intent that I can now have a relationship with God my creator because my sin no longer is a barrier between me and a God who is holy because Jesus has paid the price by paying that price for me. So that's, that's the first gift of God. The second gift of God is that when Jesus rose from the grave, it wasn't because Jesus being God needed to defeat death. Jesus rose from the grave to defeat death for you. He overcame death for us. 
And so we've been given the promise that uh, at the point where our bodies cease to function, that we enter into a state that we don't fully understand. But whatever heaven is, it's not what's going on here. It's perfect. It's glorious. It's forever. It's without regrets. It's without tears. It's without pain. It's without suffering. No children die. No more heart disease. No more cancer. No more war. That's what being in the presence of God is, and that is the promise of God. But God never promised, because you decided to follow Jesus, that he was going to uh, take all suffering away from you. We live in a fallen world, therefore we live in this time of suffering. So the apostle here, Peter, tells us that we need to live a life of deferred gratification. Look forward to that good thing that is coming. Uh, the, the experience of being a Christian uh, isn't that we experience his power, and he's talking about the glory of Christ and our strength, but we experience the power of God in our weaknesses. Uh, the Apostle Paul uh, had a lifelong illness, and God didn't heal him. I don't know about your theology, but, you know, Paul was obviously chosen by God, even though he was a persecutor of the church. Uh, he suffered immeasurably as he began to share the good news of Christ around the Roman Empire. Uh, history tells us that ultimately he was crucified upside down in a Roman court. Uh, we don't know in what other ways he was tortured. I mean, Paul writes extensively about some of the things that he faced on his journeys. But, you know, it simply wasn't an easy life. But on top of that, Paul battled with some type of physical ailment that was really debilitating. And he lived, whatever time he lived, he lived with that physical ailment. And so here is a man that God used in a powerful way, that God chose in a powerful way, and God did not remove suffering from his life. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, the Apostle Paul was basically saying, I pleaded with God, remove this from me. And God said no. And the response that Peter gives to the church at Corinth, he says, but God says to me through my prayers, that my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weakness, so that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasure in weakness, insults, catastrophes, persecutions, and pressures because of Christ. For when I am weak, I am strong. Now, how many of us kind of say that in our daily life? You know, praise God, I'm suffering. <laughs> You know, the book of James says, count it all joy. I mean, when you read those kind of verses, if you ever read those kind of verses, isn't your reaction like, huh? What? I mean, over and over again, we see this, this counterintuitive reaction to pain and suffering. Where you and I flee it and kind of accusatorily come to God and say, why? The early Christians were taught to embrace it. They saw it as a short-term passage of time where they were moving through something towards something that was essentially much better. And not only that, that that suffering gave them the privilege of experiencing the power and presence of God that they would have never experienced apart from suffering. That's one of the things I've noticed uh, throughout history and around the world. The people who suffer the most seem to have the most intimate, close relationship to God. There's something about stripping away our illusion of control. And by the way, that's all it is, an illusion. When, 
when suffering and tasks strip away the illusion of control, then it's just me and God. And what I find out, and what our brothers and sisters in Christ find out around the world is that God is more than sufficient. God is more than enough. And so there's an invitation to take the long view. And then the, then the third principle is there is a, an exhortation to be different. And I guess the way we would say it today is to embrace your weirdness. He says, look, if you would, uh, beginning at verse uh, 15. He says, none of you, however, should suffer as a murderer, a thief, an e evildoer, or as a meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he should not be ashamed, but should glorify with that name. So what, what he's saying is, look, we, we need to be very careful to understand that as Christians, we have, called to, we have been called to live a different life. And we need to be careful about for the reasons that we suffer, that it really is because, and we're going to talk about this in just a second, are we really exhibiting the kingdom of God? And is that the reason we're suffering? I mean, if, if we fall into these categories that we're the murderers and we're the evildoers, and I love the last one, he said, the meddler. <laughs> Who's the meddler? It's the person that won't keep their business, to keep their nose out of other people's business. I mean, everything from murderers to just being a busybody. I mean, everything from killing and taking human life to people who just go around stirring up trouble. You know any Christians that just go around stirring up trouble? <laughs> what, what Peter is saying is, don't think that your persecution, if you've got these type of behavioral attitudes in your life, don't think that the persecution is going to bring you in to an usher of a special experience of the mercy and the presence of God. Because that's what true persecution can do. It can bring you into an, an incredible experience of the power of God when you're going through difficult times. But don't, don't be deluded. Now, I think Chris made this point, Pastor Chris, in one of his sermons. You know, guys, when, when you're saying nasty things to people as Christians, and people know you're a Christian, and, and when you're using the Internet to beat people up, and people respond in vitriol and hatred back to you, don't be surprised. And don't blame God. They're not persecuting you because you're a Christian. They're persecuting you because you're a jerk. And there's a lot of folks, I think, today in the church that rather than being submissive to the kingdom of God in looking to emulate Christ and follow Christ in the way that Christ reacted to persecution and opposition and difficulty in the world, they just want to vent their spleen and at the same time call themselves Christian. And Peter is saying we, we need to be very careful because we're living in this period of time of injustice where we have no power and no control. And that kind of tends to build up a sense of resentment and anger. And all of a sudden, these personality traits, these simple traits that all of us have, they come to the forefront. And then we say things and we do things that do not bring glory to God. And then all of a sudden, we begin to say, well, it's because I'm a follower of Christ. No, it's not. It's not because you're a follower of Christ. It's just because you're a nasty, mean, bombastic person. And you're not walking under the rulership of Christ. Well, you say, well, how do you know, Pastor? That's pretty judgmental. It's because I'm a mean, nasty, bombastic person. I mean, I have all those tendencies in me. 
And so one of the things that God has given me the grace to do by his own strength is to put a muzzle on my mouth and put a muzzle on my fingers so that I'm not out there just offending people for the sake of offending people because they don't agree with my opinion. That is not the kingdom of God. We are ambassadors. We're representing the kingdom of God, transitory, moving through this earth. So remember, remember that God has called us as Christians to be distinct from the world that we live in. If our world is filled with violence and anger, that doesn't mean that we should be filled with violence and anger. That, that, that's where the church is countercultural. Everybody's outraged today, right? If you're liberal, if you're on the left, you are outraged. If you're on the right, you're conservative, you are outraged. Well, folks, when you get people that are just outraged, nothing good comes out of it. When a culture comes down to the base level of winner takes all, that means you have winners and losers. And when you have winners and losers, nothing ever good comes out of that in humanity. And so for us as Christians, that's not the way it works in the kingdom of God. Uh, this is where Peter is headed in, in this whole passage. And so he kind of really gets to the meat of where he wants to go, beginning in verse 17. And, and this is kind of like maybe where we didn't expect him to go. Maybe we expect him to go, you know what? If they oppose God and they oppose you and they oppose the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, this is a holy God who loves humanity so much that he gave his, the life of his son, Jesus Christ, to be a bridge between God and man and woman, and that God rose, gave his son the power to uh, rise from the dead so that you and I might have that same hope in our life, and that God is going to, to crush all your enemies and, you know, everybody who stands opposed to you, uh, and so, it, you know, just kind of wait a little while, and then God's going to kill all those bad people. Uh, that's not where Peter turns. Peter turns to the church. And look what he says in verse, verse 17. Uh, for the time has come for the judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who disobey uh, the, uh, the gospel of God? In other words, he's saying, why don't you let God handle those people and you just deal with yourself? You remember Jesus in his relational issues? One of the times he would say this, he'd say, look, he said, rather than looking at the speck in your brother's eye, why don't you first kind of focus on the log in your own eye? And that's an, it's an amazing statement because you know what? It's so obvious. I can always see what's wrong with you. But it's sometimes exceedingly difficult for me to see what's wrong with me. And Peter is saying is, rather than being outraged with the world, why don't you just quietly deal with yourself before God? Uh, the Apostle Paul uh, was talking about judgment in the church to the Corinthians. There was a church that had a lot of immaturity in it. He said, look, guys, he said, if you judge yourself, God has no need to judge you. You know, I, I kind of believe this, having been in the ministry for a long time, and I, I deal, work globally with pastors and in, in, in across the United States with pastors. And let me tell you something on that's going right now, is God is judging pastors in America. He's exposing pastors in America. Not a week goes by that I'm not made unaware of another star who has fallen. And, and I'm just going to be honest because I'm a pastor. In, in the end, when you, when you look at the particular reasons of why that pastor fell, it, when the end, when you get past the particular to the general, the general is always this, they were filled with themselves. 
They were full of themselves. And it's just like as a, as a father, you know, my responsibility wasn't to discipline my neighbor's children. As a father, my responsibility, you know, sometimes I can see kids acting up in Walmart or, you know, Lowe's or someplace like that. But, uh, you know, the only thought in my mind is I'm glad, glad I don't have to deal with that. But as a father, I was responsible for the behavior of my children because when they were little, they kind of represented mom and dad and represented the Dylan name. In the same way, God is saying, look, don't worry about what the world is doing. Let's take, hold, let's take care of the household of God. And, and really, don't you even worry about your brothers and sisters in Christ. Why don't you just deal with yourself? Why don't we just make sure that we're in that love relationship of accountability to the Lord Jesus Christ, where our hearts, our minds, and our affections are under his rulership. So he, he finishes by saying this in verse 19. Uh, so those who suffer uh, according to God's will should, in doing good, entrust themselves to a faithful creator. And let me just kind of finish this last point by saying this. What, what Peter is saying is, Rest in an unjust world. Find your rest. Now, folks, this is, this is a political season, is it not? I'm glad, I'm glad you had the opportunity to vote. I encourage you to vote. But political entities and political parties are not to be the hope of the church. Vote. You have a civic responsibility. You have a civic privilege, but is not the call of the church. I mean, that is, that is not where our hope is. And so the apostle Peter is basically saying, when the world is falling apart and suffering is all around you, you can have rest and confidence and peace and trust in the God who is sovereign and almighty. I want to kind of finish by saying this, uh, because sometimes Christians have a hard time in understanding what it means to be a a cross-cultural person. Jesus most exemplified this, and I want to encourage you to do this maybe later on in the day. Take your Bible and go into the book of Matthew where Jesus gives the model of what it means to be a follower of Christ in 21st century America. And this is what he said. Blessed, or that, 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 word, that word blessed can literally mean to be spiritually advantaged. Blessed are the poor in spirit. So let me give you an interpretation. Blessed are the people in 21st century America who think not much about themselves, but more about others. So blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed, blessed are those who mourn. And, and, and when you look at the context, that essentially means those who have looked at themselves in the light of God's glory, and we mourn our own failings. We weep over our sinful tendencies. We weep over the propensity that we have to keep falling back into past behaviors. So blessed are those who are mourned. Blessed are the gentle. See, in America, you see all the rage. Take power, power, power. The gospel says blessed are the gentle. Spiritually advantaged in the kingdom of God are those who don't demand their rights because they're gentle. Or how about... Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness in a world that's gone crazy in immorality. Those who hunger and thirst 
in righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, those who are willing to forgive those who have offended them because we ourselves need to be forgiven. Blessed are those who are pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. And then the last one is blessed are the persecuted. I mean, that's the kingdom of God ethic that God calls us to. So let me just, just say this. When we look at 1 Peter, there are four things that we can take home from this. Number one is, do not be surprised by suffering. Suffering is the lot of this life before the best life comes. God is giving us something to look forward to, but it's not always going to be roses here on planet Earth. and We shouldn't expect it to be. Number two is, you are called to be weird. That's not really what I wrote down. What I really wrote down is, you're called to be different. You're not supposed to look like the world that you live in. You're a third culture kid. You represent the kingdom of God. Don't expect to fit in. Number four is examine yourself before you judge others. Alleviate the responsibility that you've taken on by judging the world or judging other brothers and sisters in Christ. You are not God. You have been liberated from that responsibility and that role. And then number four, keep looking up to God in times of testing and suffering. Let me, let me close with this quote. Corrie ten Boom, whose family was killed by the Nazis during World War II and spent many years in a Nazi concentration camp and watched her sister, uh, who was beat to death, she, she made this statement uh, sometime later on in her life, and it's a statement I think I hope you can resonate with. But I want, I want you to hear this because... We're in such a time of turmoil in our country today in America. No one knowing what the future outcome is going to be. But th this is a true statement that can change your life. If you look at the world, you will be distressed. If you look within, you will be, de you will be depressed. But if you look at God, you will be at rest. God's invitation to you this morning, those who have suffered, those who are suffering, and those who will suffer is to enter into the good rest of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together this morning, for the privilege of teaching your word. Give us hearts that are soft. Give us ears to hear that which we have not heard. Give us eyes to see that which has not been revealed to us previously, Father. Father, help us not to be surprised or shocked at the evil that we see around us or even the evil and the suffering that we see within us, Lord. But Father, help us to keep our eyes on the King who delivers us, the King who goes through the fire with us, the King who never forsakes us, the gentle shepherd who loves us, so that those who walk in fear, those who are angry, those around us who are outraged. That, Father, that they might find your peace, that they might find your joy, that they might find your rest, Father. And, Father, we know that for many of them, the only word, the only Bible, the only truth that they'll ever see or hear is us, your church. And so, Father, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ for me. Oh, God, do do what you must to conform me into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. 
My neighbors do not need me. They do not need to see me. They do not need to hear my opinions. God, they need to hear from you. So Father, may all the fires of life reveal to me the truth of who I am so that I might refine that there might be less of me and more of you. And may that be true of the church of Jesus Christ so that in these days they might see and know the love and the glory of the coming King. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.